Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. The 20th century was exceptionally bloody. World War II is the most deadly human event that has ever happened by a wide margin. World War I, the Cold War, various other conflicts, they were massive compared to what came before. But the 20th century didn't invent mass warfare, nor did it invent radical ideologies, ethnic strife, religious fanaticism, or violence on any kind of grand scale. And if you were to talk to a person about history in 1913, just before World War I started, and you were to talk to this hypothetical 1913 history buff about some of the grand tragedies of their modern age, you obviously wouldn't talk about the two world wars. They wouldn't happen yet. You wouldn't talk about fascism or communism. If you were talking to a person in 1913 about some of the most tragic conflicts of recent history, they would probably talk about China's Taiping Rebellion. The rebellion was led by a man who thought himself to be appointed by God, and also the Son of God, to overthrow the Qing dynasty, and the resulting conflict claimed millions and millions of lives. China, just prior to 1850, was not in good shape. Southern China, in particular, was doing fairly badly. Uh, there were several natural disasters, including flooding and famine that wreaked havoc on people's lives and also the local economy. And even worse than that, China was in the process of being humiliated by the United Kingdom. In the early 1800s, Britain had had some problems trading with China. There were all kinds of Chinese goods that Britain wanted to buy, such as those famous Chinese ceramics, also textiles. But Britain didn't have anything that it could sell to China. They were experiencing a trade imbalance. And it was a bad deal for Britain to be on the wrong side of that trade imbalance. So the UK went and created demand. Demand for opium. In the early half of the 1800s, the United Kingdom and the East India Company they essentially took on the role of being drug pushers on a grand scale, introducing an addictive substance to China that they knew there would be demand for, because it's addictive. So there's demand. The Opium Wars. Those are probably worth an entire episode on their own, so I won't go into detail here. I'll just say that in 1842, Britain defeated China in the First Opium War, and a lot of that fighting took place in southern China, where our story is going to unfold over the next two episodes. And the Qing Dynasty at this point, it is not succeeding in the eyes of its subjects, especially in the South. If there had been a Gallup poll in the 1830s and the 1840s in southern China, it probably would have shown a great deal of the population being upset with how the officials in Beijing were running things. And another dimension of that is that a lot of that discontent got ethnicized. Uh, the Qing dynasty was Manchurian, people who had migrated into China from the north, and they were ethnically and culturally different from many of the Han Chinese uh, that they were ruling over. A lot of those Han Chinese were, I imagine, upset over what was going on with their country. Floods and famine and such 
those are bad enough. But add in mass drug addiction, warfare raging throughout your country, and defeat and humiliation by a foreign power, and you can understand why the average person in southern China would want radical and even violent change, particularly if it was in revolt against a dynasty that some people there still thought of as foreign, as Manchurian. And I'm not saying here that I endorse what's about to come, and I endorse what the Taiping rebels ended up doing, but I think I can understand where a lot of them were coming from. I think I can understand the discontent and the malaise that led to this conflict. And in the midst of all of this instability in the 1830s and 1840s in China, and southern China in particular, steps a figure called Hong Xiuquan, whose name I'm probably almost certainly mispronouncing. This guy was a would-be bureaucrat who had failed the Chinese civil service exam either three or four times. I read a few sources that said he failed it three times, and a few other sources that said he failed it four times. And that alone does not, by the way, mean that he was some kind of failure or dropout or, you know, a loser or something. The Chinese civil service exams, they were notoriously difficult. In fact, they were designed, really, so that only the most educated and prestigious members of wealthy families could afford to study for them for years and eventually pass them. The passage rate for this test was about 5%. And Chinese literature is full of anecdotes about would-be government officials who attempted the exam again and again and again and failed again and again and again. Hong was not a privileged son of a wealthy family. He was not one of those people who could devote his life to studying the exam until he finally, finally passed it. He was a Hakka, a member of an ethnic minority in southern China. And Hakka were Han from the north that had migrated south, and even though they had lived in the south for some time, they were still referred to as guest people. And a good point of comparison I found for the Hakka in southern China was to think of them sort of like the Amish. They're folks who are culturally distinct and old-fashioned, but they're not native to the place where they live in. Hong Quan, after his third or fourth failure at the civil service exam, appears to have taken it rather badly and had some kind of nervous breakdown or mental health episode. During this mental health episode, during this potential nervous breakdown, Hong was laid up in bed and hallucinating. He claimed to have had some kind of revelation that convinced him, eventually, that he was destined to be far more than just a government functionary or bureaucrat. In his dreams, he saw a robed figure and also angels who bore him up to heaven. He saw Confucius being punished for his sins and another divine figure who gave him a sword and a seal and commanded him to purge China of demons. And for years he dwelled on these images, these hallucinations, these visions that he had, and he thought, it seems, nothing of those dreams, while he supported himself as a schoolteacher. Later on, though, via some Baptist missionaries in China, Hong Quan would find himself inaugurated into something 
much larger, he thought, than the Chinese civil service. He would begin to think of himself as a servant of God, and I'm not talking about as a humble servant of God. He thought of himself as somebody anointed by the divine to lead his followers into bloody revolution. Hong, he was given a Baptist missionary pamphlet, and it seems he internalized it and took it to heart to a great extent, because that pamphlet, it gave him context for his visions that he had had years before. This religious tract seemed to be a kind of clarifying document for him. To Hong, those visions were no fever dream, they were no hallucination. They were a command from heaven. He claimed that that robed figure was Jesus Christ, and that that divine figure who had given him the sword and the seal was the Christian God, and it revealed that God didn't have just one kid, Jesus. He actually had another one, one that was present in China right now. Jesus Christ had a younger brother, and that was Hong himself, who was destined to wipe out the decadent and ineffective Manchus and proclaim a new era for China. Hong, he, under the guidance of the Christian God, would bring China out of this morass in the middle 1800s. It would rise up in spite of the natural disasters, the flooding, the famine, the opium, and the defeat at the hands of foreign powers. Hong began by burning all of the Buddhist and Confucian statues in his home, and he began to preach his newly found religion to his fellow Hakka. And the brand of Christianity that Hong Shu Quan espoused was radical and proposed to sweep away other Chinese religious systems. He believed, for instance, in all property being held in common, equality across class and gender, the banning of alcohol, opium, and tobacco, all of that. And his was a Christianity that wasn't limited to the spiritual realm. It would affect people's property rights, their money, their status in society, their sexual lives, and what they could and could not eat. And this was, of course, at odds for how religion in China had worked up to this point. Up until this point, Chinese attitudes about religion, they'd largely been syncretic and complementary. It was possible to be a Buddhist, as well as a Confucian, as well as a Taoist, or adhere to other smaller local religions. The prevailing Western idea that a person had a single religion to the exclusion of all other religions hadn't really taken hold. Hong Xu Quan aimed to change that. Like other forms of Western Christianity, he saw his faith as the true one. And in particular, Hong singled out Confucius as being an incarnation of Satan, which is, from a Chinese perspective, fairly radical. One source I read for this noted that this was somewhat ironic, uh, given that Confucian ideals were still very much in Hong's ideology. For instance, he put far more emphasis on honoring and obeying one's mother and father than Western Christianity did. But still, outwardly, he was leading a movement that literally demonized prevailing Chinese society. Hong formed an organization called the God Worshipping Society, which gained traction and popularity with other Hakka in his community during this time of upheaval and crisis in the 1840s. Just like Hong, they destroyed statues and art, which, according to their new Christian religion, were 
idols that represented a way of thinking that had failed them and a way of life that had to be overturned. Hong and his god-worshippers, though, would burn far more than just statues and art. Their religion, their ideas, their discontent with the Qing dynasty, and with what had happened to China in the 1800s, that discontent would spread, and they would eventually found the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, or the Great Peaceful Kingdom of Heaven. The war that would follow would be anything but peaceful. The Taiping Rebellion would tear China apart and claim millions and millions of lives, and there would be nothing comparable to it until the 20th century. Next week, we'll get into the war, the conflict, and the eventual fall of Hong's regime in part two of the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. If you have not already, go to iTunes. Go to iTunes and search for Interesting Times. When you get there, there are several stars that are next to Interesting Times. Give us five of them. Also, write a review. Uh, That really does help other people discover the podcast. Also, it's feedback for me. I like feedback. Um, We have a Patreon campaign to support the podcast. Uh, To become a supporter, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Click on Support IT on Patreon and help us keep this an ad-free podcast. Uh, I am on Twitter, Tumblr. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimes with Joe Streckert. Various forms of social media. Uh, Be our social media friend. And I will see you guys next week with part two of this podcast where many, many, many people will die. Thanks for listening. Bye.